Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Hello and welcome to our first show of the autumn. We return rested with a packed podcast for you. From ants and epigenetics to the Royal Institution's Christmas lectures to A.S. Byatt. I'm Clive Cookson, and you're listening to FT Science. Before we go on, I'd like to welcome back our regular in the studio, Diana Garnham, who's Chief Executive of the Science Council, and to say hello to this week's special guest, the materials scientist Mark Mirdovnik of King's College London, whom the Royal Institution has just named as this year's R.I. Christmas Lecturer. So hello, Diana, and hello, Mark. Hello. Hello. Today, though, we're going to start off with what will be an occasional feature on FT Science, how science has influenced literature and the arts. This week, we'll hear from the novelist A.S. Byatt, who has a particular interest in neuroscience and whose passion for science permeates her writing. I'm addicted to scientists. I love talking to scientists because my criterion of a good conversation is that people will tell me something I don't know. And they tell you something you don't know about once every three minutes. And this causes me to think that the world is extremely interesting. We'll follow that by finding out about Mark Mirdovnik's upcoming lectures at the Royal Institution. And we'll end the show with this week's contribution from Science Magazine, all about ants and epigenetics. In some species of ants, queens can live ten times longer than female workers and 500 times longer than males even though they all share the same genome. But first, to Dame Antonia Byatt, usually known, of course, as A.S. Byatt. I met her this summer at the Euroscience Conference in Turin and asked her about the influence of science on her novels. This is what she had to say. I've been working out recently that I've written all... I think only my first novel has no scientific figure in it. The, the sort of spread of characters always contains somebody who is interested in the world in an intellectually inquiring way. And I think the world is somehow incomplete without such people. And I've written quite a lot about sort of Darwin, sort of modern Darwinist scientists and science at the time of Darwin. I wrote a book called Angels and Insects, and the Angels half is about Swedenborg and mysticism and Victorian religion, and the insects part is about somebody who studies butterflies and insects in the Amazon and is, as it were, the new world which is coming of people finding the world exciting, not because God made it, but because it's so interesting in itself. And then I wrote a quartet of novels which opens in 1953 with the coronation of Elizabeth II, and one strand in it is about Elizabethan England and the culture of English literature and the culture of Shakespeare and England in general. And the other strand is about the discovery of the DNA and the increasing excitement of science during that period. 
and this ends up in a novel called A Whistling Woman, in which there is a huge conference called together by a vice-chancellor who is a grammarian to discuss the relations between body and mind. And he wants to get scientists from all areas of science and people from all areas of the arts and philosophy to be talking on the same platform about the nature of the world. It's more than the nature of being human. It's the nature of the world. And, of course, because this is the 1960s, it gets completely smashed up by hippies who don't believe in any of it. And they break the windows and set the house on fire, which is a bit how I felt in the early 70s. I felt I was about to move into a world of people discovering things and analysing things, and suddenly there was this deification of mindlessness. I kept reading scientific books, and I started with a lot of stuff in French, and I got interested in Galton, who was Darwin's cousin, because Galton was one of these people who could do sums that everybody else needed a slide rule for. And I'm interested in sort of strange mental capabilities. And Galton worked on um, those people who do maths by imagining a wonderful garden and releasing the problem into the garden and seeing where the problem stops on the steps of the rose trees or whatever. It's all numerate. It's all numbers and it's all garden. That started me thinking, so I started reading in both directions. You know, I knew a lot of literary gardens, but I started reading the scientific gardens and all the creatures that were in them. And the next thing that had happened, of course, was that just as I got really interested in everything, I really realised that it's all disappearing. And I, I feel heartbroken about the fish. I do a lot of research on fish, and it always ends up with them not being there anymore. And I do it just out of interest, really, and then it gets into the novels because it's part of my mental luggage. I spend a lot of time worrying about the animal that we are. We're an incredibly successful animal, and I don't hate us. I, I, I'm not religious. I mean, I don't believe we were, we are an animal that was put in charge of all the other animals to look after them. But at some primitive part of myself, I believe that we were put in charge. We were put in the earth to live with all the other things on it, and we aren't doing She's got quite an elegiac tone to her voice, hasn't she, when she talks about the dis disappearing fish and insects and so on. A.S. Byatt, I think, is quite unusual still amongst novelists in taking such an interest in science, at least among mainstream scientists, isn't she? What do you think, Mark? I think what she does is she's got a very intellectual approach to science. I think other, other novelists like Michael Crichton and so on, I mean, they pick science, and it's obviously a big theme in, in both books and novels. And, uh, and films, but it's very much these blockbuster ideas like re reinventing the dinosaurs or recreating the dinosaurs or viruses taking over the world. I think with A.S. Bart you have a much more nuanced take on science as part of culture and how it kind of feeds into culture and the intellectual environment. Yes, she is an archetypal English intellectual. You can hear it from every timbre in her voice, I would say. I mean, science is part of what she does, um, rather than being something that stands separate from what she does, which is rather nice. I was quite taken by her suggestion that her lively conversations were had with scientists and she learnt everything, something every three minutes. I wondered what scientists thought of the conversations with people like A.S. Byatt and whether that 
stretches their imagination and the approaches they have to the way they think. I think it does. There is an Italian neuroscientist, whose name I'm afraid I forget, with whom she was having a very lively conversation at the Euroscience Conference in Turin, where I talked to her. My impression, also from talking to her, not from what we recorded, is that um, it is a two-way stimulus. She enjoys stimulating the scientists as well as being stimulated. You mentioned Mark Crichton. I mean, there's obviously everything from outlandish sci-fi through to more um, credible sort of lab-lit stories about scientists through to um, the, the work of A.S. Byatt, which is tinged with science but isn't really about science. I mean, I think the one that in the last 10 or 15 years I've read that's most made most impression on me is in the middle but brilliant is Smiela's Sense of Snow by Peter Hogue, the Danish writer. That, I think, was fantastic. Anyway, I think we should probably move on now to this year's RI Christmas Lectures. Mark, please give us a little preview. Well, um, so I'm a material scientist and I, I spend my my days designing new materials and trying to understand how materials work. And my particular speciality is, is self-healing materials. So how to, you know, how does nature make things like skin and other tissues that self-heal? And can we, can we learn enough from how nature does it to incorporate them into things like airplanes and mobile phones and the other things in our daily lives so that they become more animate, if you like. I mean, material science is kind of a weird subject, in a way, because no one really knows what it is outside <laughs> material science, in a way. People say, well, is it physics, or is it chemistry, or is it engineering? And it's, a, it's all of those things. So it is a very diverse subject. But the one thing that you could really say absolutely defines it is this obsession with looking down at the scale of different things and working out which scales are crucial for the properties of that bit of matter. And what is your own research focusing on in particular? I mean, I look at the, what's called the microscale of tissues and of jet engine alloys. I know that they sound like they are so wildly differently they apart. And they do. <laughs> that, that they couldn't possibly be, rela- be related. But actually, it turns out there is a lot of uh, interrelation between the two. And I use the same techniques for looking at the jet engines <laughs> as I do for... for with living tissues. And you'll find there's, I think, now a, a huge growing body of people who are realising that this barrier between inanimate and animate is not quite as distinct as people once thought. So, so the lectures are going to really look at that through the lens of scale. And scale is just a fascinating axis with which to kind of consider the world. Because uh, we're used to the sort of four dimensions, you know, three of space and one of time. But scale... Is is a kind of is the joker in the pack, isn't it? If you shrink yourself down to the size of, let's say, an ant, <laughs> uh, you, you your world is, you know, although the laws are all there, the physical laws are all there, your world is completely different, and how you perceive the world is completely different, and how you behave in the world is completely different. And if you be, equally become a giant the size of a mountain, again, the what you call a material is something completely different. A, a mountain might be a material for you, whereas for us, it's a structure. Um, so so. That's that's how I'm really going to approach the subject of material science. There's a real scope at the RI Christmas Lectures in that great historic banked lecture hall for you to act as the tradition calls for, as rather a showman. Are you looking forward to it? How are you actually going to approach the lectures themselves? 
I am very, very much a fan of the demonstration. The great thing is these days that although the world appears to be uh, like a, like the sea, you know, there's lots going on underneath the sea, but you can't really see it unless you've got a pair of goggles or aqualungs. We now have these exploratory equipments to zoom into metals and tissues, and these, these are amazing microscopes, and they are now portable. So, so you'll bring one in? Oh, not, not just one, many. That We will be swimming about in the interstices of computers and in the veins of ants and and also jumping hugely into the air and becoming giant gods, looking at the, the mountains as if they're tiny pimples. And you'll be on television too. The, yes. The, the BBC, I gather, <laughs> has taken them back and will be showing your three lectures. Hugely exciting to be back on the BBC. It seems to me the natural place for the, for the lectures to be. A lot of people in this country certainly were inspired about science through the RI Christmas lectures. There's a is indeed, as I said, a great tradition for you to follow. And presumably people can get tickets if they want to physically see you through the Royal Institution. Yes. Um, now, you have to be a member of the Royal Institution to, 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 be, to be able to get the tickets when they first go on sale, and I'm reliably informed that, that they, go, they get sold out very fast. So if, I would join the RI if you want tickets. Good plug for the RI. <laughs> I joined earlier this year, so I'm willing to endorse that. Can I just pick you up? You didn't mention the link with biology, of course, materials and biology, and that, I think, is very important especially with your own interest in skin can I just pick up something that I think might appeal to younger people which is the idea that you can make things last a little longer so that if technology is allowed to evolve we won't keep throwing away our mobile phone where it will transmorph into something else at the moment we're going through this sort of period where you know it's a bit like having a pet isn't it a mobile phone you know you're enamored with it and you think it's so cute and wonderful and you kind of constantly spend all your time doting on it and then after a while you get bored and you want a new cat or a new dog or a new newt whatever it is i think we're going to move towards a situation where they are going to have a longer lifespan than than the one or two years that we used to and once they get to a lifespan of 10 or 20 years it's quite possible that you'll have a mobile phone like an old watch you know last you your whole life the only way that can happen is not through the traditional way of repairing something yourself because the things that you're repairing are just so microscopically small that there is really no way to do that anymore so the only way forward to to kind of having longer lasting objects that you have a relationship with your whole life is for them to repair themselves and that that's really the hope here well i'm certainly going to be watching i'm not sure if i'll be there in person It's time now to hand over, though, to Robert Frederick and his report from Science Magazine in Washington. Thanks, Clive. In some species, longevity is built into the genome, but the genes aren't always activated. For example, in some species of ants, queens can live 10 times longer than female workers and 500 times longer than males, even though they all share the same genome. Here's a beautiful system to study aging without manipulating the system, because the system offered that. Danny Reinberg is a biochemist at the New York University School of Medicine and Howard Hughes Medical Institute. From one egg, right, from one larvae, which all of them have exactly the same genetic information, we can generate a queen or a worker. And among the workers, depends upon the species, can be a major or a minor. Meaning that all those differences in lifespan and behavior are epigenetic, or external, rather than genetic influences. Just what causes these epigenetic changes? Well, researchers don't really know. But in a paper in the latest issue of Science, Danny Reinberg, Shelley Berger, Jürgen Liebig, and colleagues establish a new experimental model in ants to study epigenetics in aging and behavior. 
Co-author Jürgen Liebig is a biologist at Arizona State University. For this, we want to have the sequence of the genome and then look at differential gene expression in different aspects. For example, in aging, how does it help to understand aging mechanisms or developmental plasticity or behavioral plasticity? So the team sequenced the genomes of two species of ants, the carpenter ant from the United States and the jumping ant from India. Ants that differ in caste specialization, social organization, and even how they fare as the colony grows older and the queen dies. Co-author Shelley Berger is a biologist at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. She says that in the jumping ant species, in which a female worker takes over the task of laying eggs when the queen dies, that ant also gets a boost in longevity. That longer life accompanies that transition in behavioral changes. And we can try to get at the you know, mechanistic molecular basis for what's been a correlation that long length of life correlates with reproductive capacity. We can try to understand the molecular basis of that, so it's pretty fascinating, we think. Of course, there's another species in which longer life correlates with reproductive capacity, people, with women having, on average, longer lives than men. But it will be a while before researchers even try to connect the enormous differences in longevity among male and female ants with the modest differences in longevity among men and women. For now, honeybee researcher Gene Robinson of the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign says they'll probably just be comparing the ant genomes to those of other insects. With the publication of these genomes, basically this paper is an announcement that the ants are open for business in the sociogenomic context. And already, Robinson, who is not affiliated with this study, is questioning prior interpretations of research results in bees. And that's where this comparative approach is going to be so rich in allowing us to really strengthen the interpretations of findings of genome features and really link them more strongly to aspects of their social biology. For Science Magazine, I'm Robert Frederick. You can hear more of our weekly podcast at sciencemag.org. Back to you, Clive. Thanks very much, Robert. Epigenetics certainly is the most fashionable subject now in genetics and biology. And there's so much to learn about how an identical genome can produce so many different outcomes and how those outcomes are determined. Now, Mark, you mentioned ants briefly. Ants um, appear to be super strong. Not, 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 not just they have this ability to kind of <laughs> change their behavior depending on who, who they are in the group, but the, but ants can hold up to 300 times their own weight. Carry, I mean, I think we'll all be familiar with that sight of looking at some ant idly on the floor as it carries away a crumb that we accidentally um, spilt on the floor and thinking, my God, it's huge, but it is amazing. And if you compare that to the world champion uh, bodybuilder or Olympic champion weightlifter, that's up to three or four times their own weight is the maximum. So what's going on? I mean, are ants really super strong or... Are we just not trying hard enough? Are we have we just not really, you know, pushed our boundaries of human strength? And well, we could help. Perhaps if we had some robotic assistance, <laughs> then we could lift three hundred times our weight. But I can't see it with our own bodies. Can you? Well, so that's the question. Why? Why is that? Is there is that is there a physical limit? Is there or is it something to do? Is it something to do with our biology or is it something to do with our scale? And that's one of the things I'll be having a look at. There's another interesting aspect of. Um, of the work that links with with my lectures, which is that of um, lifespan. So it turns out that if you look at mammals, lifespan scales with size. So think if you're bigger, you live longer. 
And uh, so elephants live a lot longer than us, and we live a lot longer than a dog, and dogs live a lot longer than mice, and so on. Why is that? Is there some fundamental mechanical material reason for that? Or is it encoded in the genes? And I think this kind of study is the sort of study that's going to start unlocking some of that. But there are some fundamental good reasons why size should affect your lifespan. What about you, Diana? Are you an ant fan? I worry about ants' sense of community discipline and the fact that they all behave themselves and do the same things. I don't like... The lack of diversity worries me. So, But I thought that it's really two things that are quite interesting. The fact that... Um, something that we might step on and squash now becomes something very fascinating because of the uh, way that science has given us the ability to look at this and it becomes more interesting. And the other one, again, is going back to ASBI and the use of language and the fact that the worker beads split into two camps and we've got these carpenter bees. And I liked that Carpenter term. ants. Carpenter ants, sorry. I liked that terminology. I thought it helped me understand their place in a way, which is, and what they do. Thanks very much. I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. Next week, we have another fascinating show lined up for you and another distinguished guest, Sir Peter Knight of Imperial College. We'll be talking to him about quantum physics, or trying to. All that's left for me to do is thank my studio guests, Diana and Mark. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for listening. FT Science was produced by LJ Filatrani. I'm Clive Cookson. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.